0: Just before we get into this week's value, before I realised I was doing the announcements this morning, I'd worked this uh, announcement into my sermon. Uh, We're going to be doing some uh, baptisms next term, so I'm going to be holding some classes uh, throughout next term for people who are interested in baptism and want to, want to maybe hear a little bit more about it uh, or for people who've already just come to that place where they already recognize, already know that baptism is the first step of obedience for someone who follows Jesus. So uh, if that's you, if you're interested in baptism, why don't you come and see me? Coming to the classes doesn't obligate you or me to you getting baptized. So there's no strings attached uh, to, to that, if you, if you turn up. So uh, that, that would be great if you want to come and see me later. Hey, uh, let's get into it. For the last five weeks now, we've been rolling through, uh, looking at, discussing values that, that say uh, to us and help us create uh, and sustain, if you like, an environment where we know Jesus in an increasing measure. And out of that, the more we get to know Jesus, in an increasing measure, we are strengthened and have the confidence and even the desire to then go and make Jesus known to others. Like that's that's our that's our our vision and our mission uh, to know Jesus and make him known. And so throughout the weeks, we've said, well, we we get that done by living biblically faithful lives. It's not just that we know the Bible; it's that we're transformed by the bible and what we find in there we 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 have our lives founded and formed in jesus we live lives of renewed worship and and prayer that see jesus as the focus of both of these activities and last week we looked at how we live uh, sacrificially sacrificial service to others we serve because we first were yeah, you guys have been listening. That's confidence grows in me when I hear you respond. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can keep going. So this week what we're looking at is the value of being exceedingly generous. This is the kind of generosity that seeks to ensure that out of what we have, the needs of others are met when they can't meet those needs themselves. To bring about, to bring about healing, to bring about the praise of God. This kind of generosity, this exceeding generosity is an intentional heart condition that organizes its material life to be in regular and responsive rhythm of generosity. And just like service, its motivation is experiential. Because because we have been the beneficiaries of God's uh, exceeding generosity to us, we have a transformed attitude in our heart. That allows us to be to be willing, to be joyful, to be eager, to, to be this, this cheerful giver uh, when it comes to our own generosity. This attitude of generosity flows out of us to the degree that we perceive and have encountered God's generosity to us. We are less concerned, we are less grieved about what we give up to the degree that we understand and perceive what God has given up for us in his gracious giving towards us generosity Paul says in 2nd Corinthians 8 8 is not something that he can command or anyone can really command it's more of a test it's 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 more of an evidence of a true and authentic encounter with Jesus as your Savior in which. In which Jesus, though he was rich, we we come to this understanding, though Jesus was rich, had had everything, became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Paul is explaining the gospel here in terms of effective, in terms of transformative, uh, effective generosity. He is saying that if you have encountered and understood the generosity of God in Jesus then there should be an evidential shift in your attitude towards generosity. A shift that is one of a willingness and a, and a similar nature to the one that God has had towards us. For Paul, self-giving is organically connected to Christ. Our self-giving is organically connected to Christ's own self-giving so that the former, our self-giving, flows naturally out of our experience of Jesus' self giving to us that's just how Paul understands it and writes it up Paul has already brought to the attention of the Corinthians the example of the Macedonians and and what and what this kind of model of generosity looks like he presents the Macedonian church as 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 the paragon of this if you like now we don't know this but this would have been quite confronting for the Corinthians because the Corinthian church is this kind of upwardly mobile, kind of socially trending church. It's planted in a progressive city of Corinth. It's got all the trade, all the commerce, all the newest ideas and great things come through this city. And so they're all in this church. It's a, it's a destination church for career pastors. So they have all the best speakers. It's a very sleek operation in Corinth. They've probably got some crazy first century hipster that's serving, um, you know, camel milk, skinny chai lattes, or whatever they rolled with in the first century, just out in their foyer. That's probably what's going on there. Paul says, You excel in everything in faith and in speech and knowledge. You're just shooting the lights out. And that's not a bad thing, it's good. But don't forget to share. Don't forget. Don't lose your vision of generosity. As we read through the passage, we see that Paul understands that they've started the process of of being generous. Paul's taken up a collection and he's going to take it to the churches in need. And he's even been boasting to the Macedonians about them. Now he says, Don't lose that vision of generosity. He says to them, Because of... I earnestly love you. Let me remind you of the Macedonians. You need to become like your brothers and sisters up to the north. And the Corinthians would be like, get out of here. We don't need to become like anyone. We're the bar. The Macedonians were seen by the Corinthians just in general, culturally, as being a a bit lame, you know. They tended to look down their noses at them as being a bit backward, not not quite on on vogue. Um, My kids would say they had a kind of a low-key cringe factor about them. They they, they probably didn't have a barista out in their foyer. They they just weren't like that. But Paul says when it comes to being on trend with the gospel, they are the ones that are shooting the lights out. Their lives are not governed by what they lack from a worldly perspective, but what they have received from a spiritual perspective perspective from an eternal perspective that's what's governing their lives poor and struggling that they are they see themselves as rich beyond compare their abundance their, their their joy is in the giving themselves to the lord that's where they find their richness that's 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 where they find great wealth is actually being in relationship with jesus and out of that relationship flows a heart for the needs of the church, the church that Jesus died for, the church that that rises up out out of the profession of the gospel about who Jesus is. As Jesus emptied himself of his riches to bring to life the church, so they in turn give at a level which they can to love the church and its ministry of the gospel and its ministry of graces toward people. When Paul says they gave beyond their means, he is saying it was costly and unexpected. Like, you didn't think those Macedonians were going to be the ones who, who'd lead the way in this, but they are. If anyone had a case not to give, it was them. But their abundant joy that exists, even in the hardship, this, this giving themselves to the Lord first has overflowed In a wealth of generosity, it's an attitude of their heart. This is not a numerical statement that Paul's making, but an attitudinal position. The wealth was already in their hearts. Their wealth is that they know Jesus. They're connected to him. And now their hearts overflow well up in gratitude, in actions of readiness to be generous. Here's the lesson of the Macedonian model. Relationship with Jesus is not evidenced by what you have so much, but by what you're prepared to give up. There's a spiritual law at play. Generosity is an evidence of a transformed heart that understands that we don't really actually own anything. We are merely stewards of God's grace to us, however it comes to us in word and deed. Paul finishes with a quote from Exodus sixteen eighteen to push this home, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Israel. It's interesting that John tied our service in today to, to Israel in the wilderness. This is a quote from that. Israel are wandering through the wilderness as nomads. They are incapable of having a sustainable food source in the way they're moving around. So God graciously provides food for them each day, manna. You know, we, we know about this. We went through Exodus last year. We, hopefully you're familiar with the story. Now each family was instructed to take only what they need from God's daily provision, If you took more than you needed and kept it for yourself, you didn't drop any off at your neighbor's house, but you just hoarded it up, then it rotted. It stunk and it filled with maggots. Paul is saying, God is the giver of all you need. You might go out and work for it, but you're doing that with the body and the mind and the ability that God gave you. Now some people are better at gathering their manna better at gathering their money, better at gathering their resources. They're stronger, they're smarter, got more uni degrees. Who knows? They're faster at it. And they could use this to their advantage, to serve themselves or to take what they've, what they've gathered and then give it to the less capable, to give it to the Macedonian types who, who need it, who can't get out there at the moment and, and, and gather and work for themselves. In God's grace, you've been able to gather much, if that's you. And that's not a bad thing. But it's what you do with it that reveals where your heart is. Do you you store that up just for yourself, or or are you in mind to share, to be generous? Keller points out, he comments on this. He says, there's a spiritual law here. Gathering for oneself alone is a stench it will rot your soul. There's a danger in not having a generous heart that you begin to stench it up. Your wealth rots your soul because it has become more important to you than the giver. And what the giver wants to do with his gifts and that is that everyone's needs would be met. It's become more important to you than the giver who gave to you so that you could image his generosity so that if you're someone who can accumulate wealth because God has enabled you to do that, then you would say, you know, you give generously of that to take care of the weak, the needy, and perhaps just the plain unlucky. Like, do you think that you organized it, that you would be born here in middle-class Australia and not in Bangladesh? Bangladesh? You didn't do that. God did that. So that he could in you demonstrate how people that are connected to him selflessly, uh, joyfully, eagerly give to those who are in need. And in doing so, we point beyond ourselves to God who is the giver of all things. Creates in us a generous heart. Well Paul moves on and he's kind of like, hmm, let me paint you a picture. Let me let me start drawing with some crayons here so you understand it. And Paul employs the image of a farmer sowing seeds in chapter nine to create a, a visual picture of the two different approaches to, to giving, to what giving looks like. One is one looks like a one looks like a stenchy, stingy way of giving, and the other one is a generous way of giving. One is exceedingly generous, the other is stingy and calculated. One is based in an experience of God's grace and the other flows out of the limited framework of self-sufficiency, of what we can do within ourselves. This, is, this, this little section here in chapter 9 is more like a proverb than anything. It's a proverb based on farming practices. And we've got to keep that in mind when we read this little part of the passage. It is more like a proverb. It's not a law. It seeks to create a life principle, not, not, a, not a law. It's not cause and effect. It's teaching us something about our heart. It's exposing something about the approach, not the outcome. Even though the outcome in this story is wonderful, it's great. This is a pro- it's teaching us something about our hearts, how we approach giving, how we approach generosity. Some people very wrongly. Twist this passage into a cause and effect kind of prosperity doctrine. Give much, receive much, which is impossible, given that our, our model of what, of what giving and, and, and living out of giving looks like is our banged up friends in Macedonia. They're poor, they're impoverished, they're giving. And given that there's a different nature of what's given to what's received, but they're two different things. This seed is sowed, but fruit rises up. It's about the heart. It's about our approach to generosity. That's what's trying to be taught here. One farmer is tight-fisted. He's worried, conservative. He plants his seeds in a stingy way, walking along, just poking them in the ground every 15 centimetres, one seed at a time. And the other farmer, he's just walking through the fields, he's dipping his hands into his grain, he's just throwing out the grain everywhere, the seeds going flying everywhere till the paddock looks like it's got a bad case of dandruff. One farmer, out of his stinginess, will see a stingy return. The other farmer, out of his uh, bountiful generosity, will see a bountiful harvest. There's going to be a harvest either way, but one's big and one's small. Paul wants us to get the heart principle. It's not so much, uh, not about how much we give, but rather how freely we give. The lesson is on the mode, not the amount. One farmer has a fearful heart, a self-preserving heart. The other farmer has a heart, that, that's tr- a trusting heart, a heart that's dependent on God. And that drives and that motivates how they operate. This is a heart that's done business with God. Not some pushy TV evangelist or not some pastor standing up the front of the church, but has encountered the exceeding generosity of God. And he operates in the same way. This little sowing parable is examining our heart's attitude to being generous. It's the generous heart that God is able to use for good works and the increase of righteousness not the reaping of wealth for themselves. And that's very important here. It's generosity is driven by what God has done and is doing and will do. In God's economy, his generosity, his provision is not to be hoarded and held on but to be released in equally generous and intentional fashion to achieve two things. Not, 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 not to kind of get reward back and, and to grow your own kind of portfolio, but the outcome of generosity here is righteousness and the praise of God. Now, let's just take a side note, parenthesis, put it in brackets, whatever. This bountiful sowing is not reckless or, or, or um, reactional. It's, it's planned. It's well-considered. So it's not wasteful, or it doesn't leave a person worse off than the people that they're trying to be generous to. Paul's already said in chapter 8 12, your readiness and your willingness to ease the burden of others should not leave you burdened. It might stretch you, it might be tight, but it won't wipe you out. That is not the goal here. That's reckless. he says you should not feel under compulsion. It shouldn't be reluctant or begrudging. Or you shouldn't be left worse off. These are always the emotions that come from not having in your heart a settled, agreed upon position about generosity. Yes, you are to be generous. But that is an attitude that is fueled, is actioned through thoughtful prayer and planning doesn't sneak up on you and surprise you one morning at church. Now, that's not an escape clause. That is actually a demonstration that your generosity comes from a place of real conviction, of real encountering with God. You've actually thought through it. this 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 is how your heart is. It's not because some whack job, pop cultural kind of TV evangelist or pastor has manipulated you or whatever. It's because you've settled it in your heart. You want to be generous and you're not crazy and reckless about it. You're intentional, well thought out. Out of the parenthesis, back to to what generosity tries to achieve or is achieving and that is righteousness and the praise of God. Paul says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness, his giving, his generosity endures forever. He's quoting from Psalm 112. Generosity has an intended outcome of righteousness. Now, when we think of righteousness, we tend to think in the categories of moral goodness. Or even we might think in the categories of, of justice, of people getting what they deserve. But that is not how the Old Testament thought about justice, where, where this, this psalm is quoted from. Righteousness in the Old Testament conveyed the idea of, of people in right relationship across all lines in their lives. Like righteousness is is being in right relationships, right relationships with God, right relationships with each other, right relationships with creation. It carries the idea of of harmony, of of peace, if you like, of shalom is the word, all things being in rhythm as God designed them to be. I think it's in 2 Timothy 3, uh, uh, Peter 3, P- he has this picture of what righteousness is. It's this enduring thing that we'll, we will see in heaven. There'll be no more um, suffering and, and, and pain and that, but righteousness will endure for every Everything will then be in right relationship with God, with each other and with creation. In the Old Testament... So Again, Timothy Keller explains it like this. He makes this observation about this, this parable. He says, As the farmer scatters his gifts, what God has given him, right relationships are being restored. The world is being healed physically and spiritually. Poverty is being healed. Conflicts are being healed. And people are praising God. The church uses its resource to heal and restore in the same way, but not in the same degree that jesus does we 're just imaging Jesus, and as it does, people give thanks and acknowledge the provider of these gifts of this stewardship that the, the sower is just a steward of grace. We are generously using what we have to show how the economy of God leads to the healing of all things. And when that melts your heart, when it melts the heart of a person, they praise God. Righteousness and praise are the appropriate outcomes of generosity. Now, this is not some you know, Academy Award speech, praise of God, oh, thank God for billion dollar record sales I've had this year. This is praise of a transformed heart. You see, as you share generously both the gospel, because the gospel is mentioned all through here, we're sharing the, the gospel of Christ, and as we share generously our resources, these three things together, it results in righteousness that has an eternal quality about it. It lasts forever. Transformed lives that now endure eternally, and we'll praise God. No wonder. One of those Macedonians are joyful about this? This should bring joy to your life. God is inviting you into his plan to heal the world. He's given you everything you need to do it. A gospel and graces. What greater thing could you do? Like what greater thing could we be involved in? As Paul thinks about this, he himself is drawn to the praise of God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is an oldie but a goodie. We kind of normally roll this out at Christmas. But did you know that Jesus is the only person in human history to be older than his parents? He's the only human who existed before his parents were born. So you see, Jesus wasn't just born, he was given. He's a gift. His birth was how he was given to us. In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This generosity of the giving of the Son that leads to the eternal life of those who who would believe in him. In Isaiah nine, six to seven we read of a birth that is a gift that will establish justice and righteousness forever. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in Romans eight thirty two, Paul says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You can't outgive the generosity of God. If we have understood, if we have thoughtfully engaged and received this generosity of God towards us, then it should well up inside of us in praise. It should change and melt our hearts. It says that we give ourselves to the Lord first, and as we do, we become in increasing measure. Exceedingly generous people. Listen. What, what's the reason we give gifts? Why do we give a gift? What well, is that, Julian? Get out. Let me finish. Uh, It was a rhetorical question. You weren't supposed to engage. We were mentally thinking, why do I give gifts? Well, birthdays, Christmas. Yep, great. Hey, some of the reasons why we give gifts is to right a wrong. To heal a relationship that we have wounded through our own self-centeredness. Sandy, my wife, works in an industry that profits most from this. She's a florist. So when a husband realizes that he's been a jerk to his wife in his slings to buy a gift to make things right. Gifts heal wounds. That's what we hope. At least that's what they seek to do. The problem that we have is the wound that our self-centeredness has caused between us and God is of a nature that we can't heal. We have nothing to offer God to make peace, to make things right. Anything that we would drag up to offer God would be like dragging some of the old rotted roses out of the, back, the bin at the back of Sandy's shop and wrapping them in a bit of newspaper and saying... Mm. But God and His great love, seeing out incurable and indifferent hearts, that condition moved toward us in exceeding generosity, in selfless love, and gave His Son in exchange for for our rotted roses, his life given in such a way that it would bring life to us, and it would heal our hearts. You see, we will never seek to heal things between us and God and to and to just reach out and seek to heal things between us and each other because we're so consumed, so so self-focused, self-absorbed by our own issues. So God had to shatter our world with grace. With a gift so precious, so overwhelmingly outrageous that Paul literally had to invent a word to describe it. Inexpressible is the word that he invented. It didn't exist until this moment in time. It can't be found in Greek literature anywhere. From Homer right up to Paul, it doesn't exist. And Paul invents this word. Now, Paul's no idiot. It's not like a fourth grader coming home and saying, oh, how was your day, little Johnny? Oh, it was fantabulous. That's not a word. It is now. I just made it up. No. When Paul makes up words, this guy is a leading scholar he speaks three different languages fluently. This is a well-considered word. And the word he comes up with was to say, you just can't describe the gift of God to us. It's an inexpressible gift. You can't describe it. You can only experience it. And the question is, have you? Have you? experienced the inexpressible gift of God to us in Jesus. There is one way to know. You're a cheerful giver. Your heart plans to be willing to be generous as a response to the generosity that God has given to you and has a harvest of righteousness and praise to God, flowing out of the inexpressible gift of God to us in Jesus Christ. And the question is: have you have you encountered it? Has it melted your heart? Has it transformed your life?